Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Previously on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. Periodically, about it. you know, I, you think about it, but you don't get anywhere. You can't come up with anything. It's not like you, it's not like a mystery you can solve or a puzzle you can solve. It's like you know, this doesn't make any damn sense at all. You know, the only time she had one kind of funny incident. We did some hitchhiking, and I think we were going down to Bordeaux, and we were picked up by a guy in a convertible who I think was kind of taken with Mary because he came back a, another weekend to see her. I mean, reflecting back, I'm kind of surprised that she at least didn't call and say, I'm coming, can you pick me up, or something like that. And she never tried to leave a message, as far as you know, either? She, no, I have no recollections of her calling me at all. Episode 6, Behind the Blue Wall, sort of. I'm about 25 minutes outside Jackson. I'm feeling nervous about the cops and how they're going to react to me being there. It's a late summer afternoon, and I'm making the three-hour drive to Martha Petrie's house in Jackson, Michigan, to meet up with her and the Columbus police. Yeah, the same Columbus police who've been turning me down for on-the-record interviews for months now. This will be the first time I've talked to them face-to-face since I first met with them at a coffee shop more than a year ago. Martha invited me to this meeting. It's only because of her that I'll be able to hear firsthand where the investigation stands. The police made it clear to Martha that they weren't thrilled that she insisted on my being present, but they also didn't try to talk her out of it, which I appreciate. I hope they give us some information that we don't already know, and I'm also just really curious about whether, what the status is of any possible forensic genealogy submission. Forensic genealogy is a refresher. That's where crime scene DNA is analyzed to see if it can be linked to DNA that people voluntarily submit to genealogy websites like GEDmatch. Another thing I'm curious about, what happened with this person of interest that the cops told me they had also more than a year ago? Has that person been questioned or even located? And lastly, I hope that Martha gets something out of this conversation. At the very least, I hope that they really show that they care about the case and that they're working hard on it. After I park my car and cross the street, Martha is already at the front door to greet me. Hi, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. You're taller than I remember. (laughs) And I'm probably blonder and tanner. You are blonder. But anyway, it's good to see you. So, Justin. Yeah. It's not long before the police are due to arrive, so Martha gets right down to business. She gets me and my recording equipment settled at her dining room table, the same place I'd talked to her with my parents the first time we met, and then she picks her own spot, not at the head of the table, but at the side, with views of both the side and front windows. I'm going to sit here, 
Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Because when I sit low at the table, I'm so short. <laughs> but this feels like I'm in charge. Okay, good. Whatever you, yeah. Just a few minutes later, we see a car pull up outside. Three police officers get out. One I recognize as Sergeant Terry McConnell, the head of the Columbus Police Cold Case Unit. The other two are new to me, a middle-aged guy and a younger woman. They're all dressed pretty casually, no uniforms, no ties. Martha, who I can tell is pretty nervous, understandably, greets them at the front door. I choose to hang back, rising only once they've all entered the dining room. So, come on in. And how do I put this? The temperature in the room seems to drop by about 20 degrees. Walls arise that aren't visible, but absolutely fully exist. We are doing a podcast interview, so I don't know if there was any confusion in that or but that's not just, how we conduct our interviews. But can we take notes? You can take notes, but no recordings, because I can't control okay? what goes just out in our case. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and if we mm-hmm. allow just anyone to record, that's just not how we do it. Okay. So we would either have to Is reschedule right, for another time. Martha and I plead our case a little longer. You know, I think our our hope is to bring more attention to the case, right? That's but, why and, and that's a great thing to do. Uh-huh. But we have to be very, very careful about what information goes out in sure, an open case. Sure. If it's something that you think is just helpful to bring people in, uh-huh. that's all great. But if we bring those people in and then we can't use the information we have sure. to convict somebody if they're still alive or whatever, that does us no good in bringing any people forward. I have to admit, I don't really understand the logic. After all, McConnell has given his consent for me to be present for the conversation and take notes on it. It seems like allowing me to use his and his colleagues' exact words and their own voices would be preferable to presenting my summary and interpretation. But it's crystal clear that arguing with him right now is going to get me exactly nowhere, or worse than nowhere, because he's already threatened to walk out and reschedule with Martha alone if we insist on recording the interview. And I do not want to give up what might be my only chance to be present for a real in-depth conversation about the police investigation of this case. So out comes the notebook. And what a conversation it turns out to be. It goes on for two and a half hours. Two and a half hours that are alternately clarifying and mystifying. The first hour or so is mostly small talk, followed by the police asking Martha questions about what she knows, things you've already heard on this podcast. Did Mary mention enemies in her life? No. Did she say anything about their plans that weekend that were out of the ordinary? No. Nothing really that gives any insight into the cops' investigative angles. Then the police start talking about the status of the investigation. What you're going to hear next is a recreation of that part of the conversation, based on my notes and with some of my colleagues playing Sergeant Terry McConnell and Officer Stephanie Lubell. The other male police officer, William Gillette, didn't speak much, so you won't hear anything from him. First, Martha brings up what the police told me the year before, that they had a person of interest. What's the status of that, she wants to know. McConnell answers. Well, we have one suspect right now. There have been many people suspected along the way, but we do have one suspect. 
We don't know the name. Uh, we know that it's a man. Uh, there are two others that we don't believe are involved, but that we need to find to get to this other person that we need. Uh, but that's about as much as I feel comfortable saying. Martha asks about the DNA in the case. Is it true, she wonders, that it comes from sperm that was found on the bedspread where Mary was found, as she was told by journalist Penny Moore in 2006? The police dodge that question, but they do confirm, as we've heard several times before, that they do have DNA in the case, and that DNA is from a man, which is why they can also say the suspect is a man. In fact, they say when it comes to the evidence in general, we have preserved all the evidence from that apartment. I ask if the DNA has been submitted yet for a forensic genealogy analysis. We, we have not submitted anything for genealogy yet. With forensic genealogy, you can get lucky. It can take 24 hours to figure out who the person is, but it could also take years, depending on how many branches of the family tree you have to look into. Now, with this case, there are two people we need to identify first that would help prevent a lot of delays. He goes on to say that the police also need to be strategic about when they send off the DNA because they have a limited quantity. You know, DNA is tricky. It's not like you see on TV. You only have so much. You can't go back and get more, so you have to make decisions. Uh, because if you send it all off now, you never have that chance again, and the family never gets resolution. What about the sample that Jim McCoskey submitted to CODIS about 15 years ago, we ask? CODIS, that's short for Combined DNA Index System. It's the state of Ohio's database of DNA collected from crime scenes. That sample is still in the CODIS system, and it's never hit. Not surprising, he says, because the state only started collecting DNA in the late 1990s. But there's a small chance it still could hit because Ohio, like many states, has a backlog of entering DNA that's been collected into the database. Before we take that sample we have and submit it for genealogical analysis, I want to see if we can find more from the evidence we have. Maybe there's more DNA on Mary's clothes or her purse, for example. If we can find more DNA that we can set aside, we'd use that to go ahead with genealogy. And I don't know how long that will take. I don't want to give you any kind of promises or hopes. And that's just kind of where we're at at this time. He said before submitting the DNA for genealogical analysis, he also wants to exclude the two other people he mentioned. Whether we do that secretly or not from them, if we get that DNA and we can exclude it, then I don't have to worry as much about wasting the sample that we do have. Okay, so these two other people, I can't help but think about the two Frenchmen that Detective Ralph Taylor said he was looking for back in 2009. Are they the two people the police want to exclude? McConnell dodges that question too, but he does mention the police have been in touch with some sources in France who could help the investigation. So it seems like there could be a French angle here. Next, we ask about Tom McGuigan, Bill's roommate. Police told my parents he was not a suspect. 
Is that still the case? I, I, I don't want to say anything because even if we thought any one person was ruled out right now, this happened in 1970. So we don't have every piece of the puzzle. And even if I believe somebody might be excluded now, I could get surprised when the DNA comes back. Officer Stephanie Lubell added this. When this case was being investigated in the 70s, there were about 300 tips called in about different people. We have at least 400 names of people in the file. A lot of people were investigated. We still hope the killer's name is in there. I then asked about the cases mentioned a couple episodes ago that the police said they were investigating in the 1970s as being possibly linked to this one. For example, the case of John Miller Jr., who asked for solitary confinement in exchange for confessing to the murder of a woman and her baby in 1971, and the still unsolved murder that same year of Barbara Davlin White in a Cincinnati parking garage. The police will often talk about possible links between cases in the media, but we're looking all across the country. Martha's final question about the case, what about this feeling she has and that retired detective Jim McCoskey mentioned he had in the TV news report from 2006, that the killer was someone who knew Mary and Bill, that this was a crime of passion, not of opportunity. We know that it's a man. Other than that, we don't know. As the conversation winds to an end, It feels like the intervening hours have broken the ice a bit between me and the cops. I make a final entreaty that my only motive in this is to help solve the case. It would be so great, I say, if I could somehow earn their trust, that I'm not gonna reveal sensitive case information. McConnell says there could come a time for that, but it's not yet. The police leave with promises to stay in touch with Martha. Martha closes the door, and we walk back to the dining table in silence. Are you okay? I'm yeah, here. I'm okay. Do I'm you fine. feel? How do you feel after that? Time? Well, do you feel old, let's see. Or? I feel okay. This is. They know me. They yeah. they know something about the person I am. Yeah. And that I'm not mad at them. Yeah. I want information. I'm willing to wait. So what did you make of, he said they think they, One ha- man they think it was and a- there are two others. To get to that man. What did that mean? And trying to get DNA on the From, sly. They have to, did you say rule those two out? Is that what yeah. you said? He first? said he's got to figure out whether he's going to get DNA evidence from these two. So it looks like there are three suspects, one major and two other players. That's how it sounded to me, Justin. And he wants to get DNA. (laughs) He didn't say on the sly, but how to get DNA from these two to rule out and then it would be this guy. And they're looking for matches. From real people. Yeah. And those real people, it seems to me, are still alive. Because he said <laughs> they were trying to get DNA from them. Yes.
Martha says one other thing struck her about the conversation. Whenever I started talking about this being a murderer by someone, the murderer is someone who knew that couple on either side, whether it was Mary's side or Bill's side, because they didn't deny that. They didn't say, oh yeah. no, this could have happened a different way. I don't think there's any other way it could have happened. Her biggest takeaway though, the police think this case can still be solved and that the person responsible may well be still alive. I mean, I learned more th that he thinks the case is solvable. Yeah. He is reluctant to give us anything other than facts. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and Justin, not, I don't want you to feel bad about this, but he might have, if you had not been here and he's not thinking about podcasting, he might have said more, but I'm not faulting you in any way. Mm -hmm. You are, as, as yeah. I've told you before, you have come to know Mary, you've come to know me. I think of you as my friend. I think of you as a really good friend because you see me ups and downs, and I can laugh about the person I was or the person I am now, but... Uh, but you have a context. You begin to know my family in ways that even some of my friends don't know me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say is that's been such an honor in doing this that you do feel that I'm a friend and I feel like we've had formed a really nice friendship too. And I also feel a lot of responsibility to honor what the relationship we have and do right by you and by right. Mary. I agree. Um, I gotta eat a Kleenex, but do you want a sandwich? <laughs> I'm okay, and I should go because I got a three-hour drive to go. Okay. As I make that three-hour sandwich-less drive back to Cleveland, my mind feels full of static. Like it's already done as much thinking and processing as it possibly can for one day. But one thing does seem clear. I need to understand better how this forensic genealogy stuff works. In my layperson's mind, submitting a suspect's DNA for analysis seems pretty straightforward. I mean, how much time does it really save to rule out other people before you get a DNA profile of a potential killer? Are there possibly some legal concerns here that I don't understand? So I invite Martha Petrie to join me on a Zoom call with the founder of the Porchlight Project. That's the nonprofit I mentioned a few episodes back that funds DNA testing and genetic genealogy in Northeast Ohio cold cases. His name is James Renner, and he's primarily a Northeast Ohio-based journalist and author who writes in podcasts and blogs extensively about true crime especially the unsolved abduction and murder of 10-year-old Amy Mihalovic in suburban Cleveland in 1989. In fact, you might call Renner a true crime addict, and he probably would not mind because that's what he calls himself. It's the name of his latest book about the unsolved disappearance of Maura Murray in 2004 in New Hampshire. Renner has his fair share of critics, People who call him insensitive in his interview techniques or self-aggrandizing in his motivations, but he's been nothing but helpful to me and Martha since we reached out for his take on this case. And as someone who promotes forensic genealogy to solve cold cases without being a technician himself, he seemed to us like an ideal person to clarify how all this stuff works. 
I started out by asking him to give us his definition of forensic genealogy. The easiest way to explain it is it's the first new tool that detectives have had for investigating homicides since the discovery of how to use DNA in these cases back in 1987. I mean, it's as powerful, it's as game-changing as fingerprints, you know, were, you know, 150 years ago. And the technology keeps advancing. He says at this point, if DNA is left at a, at a crime scene, then there's almost a 100% chance that eventually we can find the perpetrator. To explain how it all works, he points to the case of the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, one of the first examples, and probably the most famous one, of a case being solved with forensic genealogy. Police found DNA that D'Angelo had left at crime scenes back in the 70s and 80s, and then, they sent it to uh, a private genealogy lab, and it would be as if D'Angelo, who, who we now know is the Golden State Killer, it would be as if he decided to do 23andMe, and he did the swab, and he sent it in, and it's like, oh, here's all your second cousins, here's all your aunts and uncles that have already subscribed to this. And then the brilliant genealogists would go to the family tree and kind of work their way down to figure out what branch of that family tree held uh, a man who was at the locations of the killings at the time of the killings. And so what genetic genealogy does is points the police towards a very likely suspect. And then it's up to the police to then go collect a fresh sample and then go back and compare it with their original sample from the killer. Okay, so that's always part of the process is after they found someone through one of these sites, they, they have to go back and try to confirm it by collecting actual DNA from a suspect. Correct. Yeah. Okay. The genealogists are doing are, are pointing you to a likely suspect or a small group of likely suspects. Say it's it's one of three brothers, you know, in this certain family. And then it's still up to the police to then go and get fresh samples and verify exactly who it is. As of now, only a few genealogy sites allow police to submit samples from crime scenes. The two most famous, Ancestry.com and the one James Renner just mentioned, 23andMe, they are not among them. The biggest one that has allowed forensic genealogy is called GEDmatch. And there's been this kind of gentleman's agreement among genealogists and police that this technology, that this tool would only be used in cases of rape and murder because it is kind of a slippery slope. There's concern about uh, Fourth Amendment rights and you know how this may be an invasion of privacy. However, there's a genealogist who overstepped their bounds a couple years ago and used it in a case of a violent assault. The case was out of Utah in 2019. A woman was playing organ alone in a locked church when someone broke in and strangled her but did not kill her. Investigators used GEDmatch to trace DNA found at the scene. And when that happened, GEDmatch was, was like, whoa, this is not what these people signed up for. So... Overnight, it went from an opt-out to an opt-in protocol. And now, um, if you upload your genetic data, you specifically have to opt into allowing police to be able to compare it. So we lost millions of possible potential matches and profiles. He says more regulations and restrictions are likely as genetic genealogy becomes less new and shiny and as privacy advocates catch up with what's happening. 
For example, the state of Maryland now requires a judge to oversee cases that use the technology, and it's also established a panel to review its use every year. So far, Ohio remains fairly permissive, but I can't help but wonder, with some alarm, if a window that's open now could close by the time the Columbus police are ready to submit DNA in Bill's and Mary's case. One thing the CPD told us was that there's like a big variance in how long it can take to Mm -hmm. get through the process of looking for matches. Is that, is that something you found? I mean, they said it could be anywhere from like a day, 24 hours, or it might take weeks or months. There's a couple factors going on. One, what is the common ancestor? Um, if you get really lucky, you get a first cousin, and then it's pretty easy to figure out how to connect that suspect to the family tree. Most of the time you get like a second cousin, and that gives you, you know, like a hundred different possibilities of who it could be. And the genetic genealogist has to build out the family trees of each one of those 100 people looking for men who could have been in the location of the murder. Then Martha chimes in to ask about the quantity and quality of DNA that's needed for a good test. So DNA, as I understand it, ages over time, how samples degrade. And so the Columbus Police Department said that you had to have five milligrams of such and such viable DNA. So what makes it viable as compared to not so viable? Does that make sense? The the world of DNA testing is advancing as quickly as like computer and, and RAM storage and things like that, where it's like exponential. So what was viable 10 years ago, um, what, what wasn't viable might be viable now. He says in one recent case he worked on, they were able to get viable DNA from a sample as small as four cells. So, I mean, we're talking the very smallest sample. All of this leads me to asking about what the police said about needing to save the small amount of DNA that they have left until they're really ready. Okay, so what they told us <laughs> is that Like Martha said, they have one primary suspect, a male, but they have two secondary suspects they want to rule out first, and they want to rule those people out before they submit the DNA for genealogical testing, because as they explained it to us, they only have a limited supply, and once they send it off, it's gone. That really confused me because I guess I would have thought you submit the DNA and you get a profile that then lasts in perpetuity, like you're not. Yeah, that tells me they they either know what they're talking about and want to confuse you, or they don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Um, either way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, they should be testing that DNA anyways, because even if they get an arrest, it's the first thing the defense is going to do, and they should know what that information is going to be. So that, that whole notion of like using up DNA or once you send it off, it's gone. Like that doesn't. I mean, that any... that can happen. I mean, what they're trying to say is they have DNA and they have enough to test one more time and then the, and then it's gone. Well, if, if they have it, the, the tests are good enough now that you're going to get the best result than you've ever had. You know, and it I, sounds I like would... you're saying like a window might even be closing. And then if, if like these efforts to limit access. So the gen match kind of... could go away tomorrow, literally tomorrow, you know, and then that tool won't exist. 
who gets to decide like the way they talk about it it's like that's their dna and they get to do what they want with it when they want i would think the it. prosecutor has the ultimate authority over what to do with that you know the the police you know and this is something we forget and they hope that we forget you know the the police are just enforcers the prosecutors are the ones that are are thinking about the trial and thinking about the legal issues of, of closing this thing up and where it's at. So if you could just find somebody with a little energy behind them in the in the prosecutor's office and a little and an open mind, that would be golden. Martha asks James Renner one last question. At this point, it's been a couple months since our meeting with the police, and she has not heard a word since then, despite sending Sergeant McConnell an email and leaving him a voicemail wanting to know if there are any updates. If she were to get in touch with someone in the prosecutor's office, could she refer that person to the Porchlight Project so James could explain the work they do and maybe even, you know, offer to pay for the testing? James does not hesitate to say yes. Tell him that the Porchlight Project feels that they can solve this case using genetic genealogy and can do so in a matter of months. That's helpful, thank you. Postscript to this conversation, one of Porchlight Project's board members does reach out, not to the prosecutor, but to the Columbus police, to offer to pay for genealogical testing in this case. The police's response? They're not ready yet. And they don't need the money. A few weeks later, I get a call from Martha. She tells me she just heard from Sergeant McConnell. He expects to have an update for her on their investigation in two months. I ask, what do you think? Do we believe that? Or should we go ahead with getting in touch with the prosecutor's office, like James Renner suggested? I think right now I'm not, um, no, as long as he's returning my phone calls. But if, for instance, he didn't answer in another two weeks, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Then I would follow up again with, I think that, I think that you need to stay more in contact with me. <laughs> mm, yeah. I have mixed feelings about this news. I want to be optimistic that what Sergeant McConnell is saying is true, that there could be real progress to report in two months. But I also worry that this could just be the start of more delays. Like, however much he actually believes there will be progress that soon, there might not be. Not because he has any bad intentions, but simply because distractions come up. Other cases feel more urgent. Or simply because whatever he thought would happen in that two-month period doesn't. For now, though, it makes sense to me not to go behind his back. And I especially don't want to push Martha to do that if she's not ready. She and I have now been working together on this case for nearly two years off and on. We can wait another two months, can't we? That's next time on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. If you have information about the murders of Bill Sprout or Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Police Homicide Case Review Unit at 614-645-4036 or get in touch with me via our website, ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, is an IdeaStream public media podcast. 
in partnership with The Ohio Newsroom. It's reported and written by me, Justin Glanville, with production and sound design by John Nungesser. Our editors are Mike McIntyre and Natalie Pillsbury. Our digital team is Annie Wu, Ryan Lowe, and Dimitri Ashaki, with graphic design and art by Lauren Green. Music is by Beyonce, Ben Von Wildenhaus, Michael Thomas Howard, Crowinder, and Lobo Loco. Marketing is by Matt Ehrman, Pat Miller, Matt Crow, and Anna Garvin, with support from Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to Marlene Harris-Taylor, Mark Rosenberger, and Claire Roth. For photos, a timeline of this case, and a document library, visit our website at ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill.